This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. Welcome to Aquarium Mania. I'm your host, Dr. Roy Anong, speaking to you from the University of Florida IFAS Tropical Aquaculture Laboratory. Thanks for joining us. Fish medicine has come a long way in the past 30 years, with more and more pet owners seeking veterinary care for their sick fish. My guest today, Dr. Jesse Sanders, owner and chief veterinarian of Aquatic Veterinary Services, is helping lead the charge of this next generation of wet pet vets. Join us as Jessie shares her professional and personal journey from marine biology in the Northeast to her mobile fish practice on the West Coast. We'll be right back after these messages. Take a bite out of your competition. Advertise your business with an ad in Pet Life Radio podcasts and radio shows. There is no other pet-related media that is as large and reaches more pet parents and pet lovers than Pet Life Radio. With over 7 million monthly listeners, Pet Life Radio podcasts are available on all major podcast platforms. And our live radio stream goes out to over 250 million subscribers on iHeartRadio, Odyssey, TuneIn, Stitcher, and other streaming apps. For more information on how you can advertise on the number one pet podcast and radio network, visit PetLifeRadio.com slash advertise today. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. Welcome back to Aquarium Mania on Pet Life Radio. My guest today is Dr. Jesse Sanders, owner and chief veterinarian of Aquatic Veterinary Services. Dr. Sanders, Jesse, it's a pleasure to have you on. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Dr. Roy Anong. Thank you so much for having me on the show today. My pleasure. My pleasure. It's been probably way too long. I should have gotten, had you on much, much earlier. So if you're familiar with any of my um, podcasts, I kind of like to get a little personal with you all for first. So we'll kind of talk a little bit about you know, the, the early Jesse beginnings. Can you maybe start by telling us about your, let's go straight to your first fish and your first aquarium. So back when I was probably about five or six, I started begging my parents for an aquarium. I was one of those kids who, you know, you see, I think it was like Mr. Rogers or Big Bird or something like that. They have a little fish in a tank and my parents were very generous in addition to having, you know, the family cat and the family dog. Uh, They went out and got me probably about a 10 gallon fish tank and two little goldfish. So one little goldfish was white and really, really big. And the other one was orange and small. Um, But I remember them being, you know, in their tank with some decor and getting the gravel and the flake food and having to help my mom help watch my mom clean out the tank every once in a while. Um, But we had them for for a couple of years. But it really inspired me to, you know, get started with fish very young. So um, you're probably not going to remember, but did you actually give them names? Oh, goodness. Probably I honestly uh, okay. no, no problem. No problem. I, I wasn't <laughs> sure. If, I wasn't sure if you had like some really interesting name for them, but, but don't, yeah, Probably don't not. worry. That was a long time ago. So I guess that maybe that goes into my next question. So how did you get interested into the whole uh, aquarium hobby in general, the aquarium uh, industry of fish keeping? So I was one of those obnoxious kids who always knew from like the second I was born that I wanted to be a veterinarian. And 
I mean, back in the day, I didn't know there were fish veterinarians. So I did, you know, the normal cat and dog. There were lots of dairy farms and horses where I grew up in Connecticut. So I got, you know, the traditional kind of vet learning side of things and ended up going to uh, University of Rhode Island for their marine biology program because I knew I had to do some sort of biology to get into veterinary school. And I'd rather, you know, do something a little different with the marine twist. So I had the awesome opportunity to have one afternoon, I think it was once a week, to go to Mystic Aquarium down there on the Connecticut, Rhode Island border and volunteer for their fish and invertebrate department. And I loved every single second of it from, you know, just scrubbing tanks in the back to cutting up fish to basically cleaning out the fridge, every gross task I was up for because it meant I got to do all the cool things like shark physicals, taking radiographs. And once I had annoyed the aquarist staff to no end, they started pushing me off on the veterinary staff. And they kind of put that in my brain. It's like, you know, maybe you want to be an aquarium vet. It's like, oh, yeah, maybe that that would be a good fit for me. So did you end up having getting an aquarium after all that? Or had you just you you were working with so many aquariums there, you didn't even bother? So how I ended up kind of on the pet fish side of things is all Dr. Helen Sweeney's fault. So when I was in veterinary school, they have, you know, a requirement of you got to go out and do private practice for two weeks, which when you're in, you know, the pressure cooker that is veterinary school, you don't really realize that private practice is out there. So I'd met Helen through Aquavet, that lovely program that Cornell puts on every four weeks. I think that's where I met you as well. And I kind of conned her into letting me come out to her practice for a couple weeks where I could do, you know, the small animal exotics requirement and see fish on the side because she has her own uh, mobile aquatic practice as well. And I loved every second working in her office with her staff, just it made veterinary medicine just so much more cool and inspiring again. So as you know, you're coming out and they're like, oh, well, you want to get into an aquarium? Well, it's going to be an internship on top of internship and a residency. And there's Helen's just like, yeah, or you can just do fish the day you graduate. And I said, that's that's what I want to do. Like, I just want to go play with fish. So after vet school, I looked around for, you know, a job that I could add fish onto, which you think would be a great selling point for a lot of vet hospitals. But they're like, nah, we're good. So I went ahead and started my own practice, which is going to be uh, 10 years ago coming up in March. That is incredible. So I guess going straight into all the work you're doing and have been doing for the past 10 years, uh, can you maybe talk a little bit about how you decided to essentially kind of be on your own and and maybe some of the logistics involved with setting up a practice and maybe talk a little bit about how you're a little different from dog and cat practice and also even, you know, obviously being mobile, you know, being another kind of difference. Yeah. So when it comes to, you know, setting up a veterinary practice, I mean, any vet, once the day you graduate, you can go out and start practicing. So it's basically, you know, getting business license, make sure your bank account's set up, make sure you have a lawyer who's making sure you're not going to do anything stupid. So my dad had actually started his own software company. So he was able to, you know, give me the basic rundown of, okay, this is like the basics that you need to run a business. And then Helen was kind enough to give me a list of all the equipment that I would need and where to buy it from and kind of a general pricing list. So I'm sure back in the day, 10 years ago, when I was telling everybody like, I'm just going to do private 
packed as fish. Everyone thought I was nuts. Um, I mean, there's still people today that, you know, aren't as familiar with me and what I will do to get the job done um, that still tell me, like, you're nuts for doing private practice. Like, there's no money in it. And I'm happy to tell everyone that that is complete and total lie. There are hundreds, if not thousands, of fish owners that are willing to pay for veterinary services because, you know, just like a cat or a dog is part of the family, although you can't really snuggle them that much, the fish in the tank, in the pond outside, they are family. So in 10 years, I have learned a lot. I have made a lot of very expensive mistakes, and I'm hoping by sharing my experience with other people that they can avoid those mistakes and hopefully, you know, set themselves up for success. Now, doing full-time fish is a, a little bit of, you know, the gold star on top, just kind of where I ended up in the country. We're out in the Bay Area of California, where there is a lot of money and a lot of people digging giant holes in their backyards, dumping a lot of water in it, which right now is is kind of expensive, and then throwing in fish, which can range, you know, from $50 to $40,000 per fish. So, I mean, if anyone out there is interested, in doing fish, there's certainly a market for it. You don't have to do it full time. Um, we need more veterinarians who at least know the basics. So, yep, that is where we're going. And again, it's 10 years in and now we got to figure out what to do for the next 10 years. So I want to ask you about kind of the early year or two when it probably, you know, was a little more challenging and you were still kind of getting your name out there. What were some of the things you had to do to, you know, even let people know that number one, veterinarians do see fish? And number two, you're the person that they would want to see. So when I was first getting started, it was a lot of outreach to the local koi clubs. So again, where I ended up in California, we have six koi clubs. That is probably one of the highest concentration of koi clubs in the area. I mean, maybe second to Florida. So I reached out to them, you know, started networking with their members. And when I first started out, I thought I would be doing saltwater aquariums 24-7. And I think I see maybe one or two of those per year. So I really didn't have much experience with koi other than what Helen had kind of shown me in the beginning. So it was a lot of just learning the basics of koi and, you know, why you need a pressurized bead filter. Thankfully, I, you know, worked on sand filters back in the aquarium days. So I wasn't starting from scratch. But all the color patterns and the breeding. And then there's koi shows on top of that. So in addition to, you know, learning about fish in general, it was all the medicine side of things, which for me was a little bit of trial by fire. And I sent Helen so many random emails of everything that I found on, you know, the skin and gill biopsies being like, what is this? Is this important? She's pretty much boiled it down to if it's not moving, probably not that appointment. Um, I sent her lots of algae and pollen <laughs> samples back in the day. <laughs> but now I have, you know, the students coming up doing the same thing. So it's a very common mistake. I basically traveled around with my textbooks in the car and I'd, you know, make up an excuse of, oh yeah, I left that instrument in the car. Let me go back and get it. And then open the book and furiously flip through pages trying to figure out what the heck was going on. So, I mean, that's just I mean, it's not for everyone to try to learn like that. A lot of, you know, veterinarians like a little bit more hand-holding. But for me, it's absolutely what I needed to do and really build confidence in my skills. And, you know, now the cases that I'm seeing are a lot more complex and I'm able to do more. But yeah, when I was starting out, it was definitely, you know, flying by the seat of your pants. Let's just let's get in there and do that. So thankfully, I've never wavered of fish medicine is what I was put on this earth to do. So thankfully, that has never wavered. 
I know you're doing an incredible job, obviously, um, you know, with just getting the word out there that, you know, there are fish veterinarians and I, you have an excellent practice, you know, really highly regarded. And a lot of our colleagues obviously look up to you now too, and, and the younger, so younger generation. So I appreciate you putting all the time into, to kind of get to where you are now. You know, before we kind of talk more about cases and, and that sort of thing, I, I did want to ask two quick questions. And the first one was kind of going into the whole education of the, to the general public about veterinarian seeing fish. I know you've done a lot of outreach and in general, in whether it's social media, books, et cetera, can you maybe talk a little bit about, I know you have, you've had a couple of books come out, maybe talk a little bit about those right now. Yes. So we actually had a book published last October. So we're still in the first year, all about koi. And it's called How to Kill Your Koi, which obviously written by a veterinarian, a little bit ironic there. But basically every chapter is based on some silly myth that I have heard, you know, regarding koi ponds. So first one, you know, for water chemistry, it's like, oh, my water looks clean, so it must be fine. Like, I'm sorry, you can't tell the pH of a water by looking at it. And then for your nutrition, it's like, oh, whatever's the most expensive koi food must be the best. Well, I've like looked at labels and that is not true at all. So basically every chapter, we try to make it fairly relatable just so people, you know, don't have to read a big, heavy, dense textbook and get the information that they really need. We're also doing some online training programs this year. Um, the first one is going to start next Monday and it's open to everyone uh, about different aquatic veterinary careers. So basically, I know my little pet fish niche side of things is very small. Obviously, you're in a different you know, classification of fish vet altogether. So I conned 11 people into talking about their careers and jobs. So that's open to everyone. And then we'll be putting on a koi class that will launch in March. That's going to kind of follow the book. And then hopefully we're going to have some in-person training come this summer. Um, I actually have a meeting this afternoon, hoping to con a couple more people into helping me. No, that's great. And I do remember a couple of years ago, I guess you had done those, uh, I think children's books, right? Or at least one or two. Can you, yeah, maybe uh, mention those? Yes. So we also have our children's book series. Um, it's three books starting out with Boo and Bubbles. And Bubbles is the fish and Boo is the little girl. She's modeled after my little sister, um, getting into trouble and splashing into puddles and all those things. So the first book goes through, you know, bringing your fish home from the pet store, everything that you need, how to acclimate, how to set up. The second book is a visit from the fish vet. So basically what I do as a veterinarian, and it goes through all the maintenance, you know, jobs that you need to do with an aquarium. And then the third one called Meet Goldie is when a new fish is brought into the house and it goes through, you know, biosecurity and quarantine, but you know, dumbed down to five-year-olds, which you'd think if I could explain it to a five-year-old, my actual adult clients would listen, but that doesn't seem to be the case. So yes, we have the the children's book series in addition to the new Koi book that just came out. No, that's great. And one last thing related to that, you mentioned your sister and I guess your sister's a human physician, right? Is that correct? Correct. She's a general surgery for humans. Yeah. So, and I know you guys can maybe uh, you talk a little bit about when you guys get together, talk about cases and if you're, you know, learning from each other, that sort of thing. Um, so mostly we just gross each other out with our cases because I think humans are disgusting and she thinks fish are really gross. But thankfully with some of our more kind of complicated surgical cases, um, she's been a really great resource. There was one fish that we were debating trying to put an artificial swim bladder into and it had to be something that you know you could 
inflate and deflate as the fish needed it. So obviously she was able to kind of give us some of the tools that they use that we might be able to incorporate into the surgery. Surgery never happened, but we are able to kind of, you know, confer on really weird random stuff that, you know, it's nice to have somebody else in the, in the, in the family that can take all the blood and guts. Yeah. And, and I, I think, again, that goes to obviously sort of the relationship between human medicine, you know, uh, veterinary medicine, and then even other small animal vets and fish veterinarians. There's a lot everybody can kind of learn from each other, um, you know, in both directions. So, yeah, no, that, I think that's awesome. Definitely when it's in the family, that, that makes it even sweeter, I'm sure. So uh, let's take a short break and we'll continue our discussion with Dr. Jesse Sanders. In, uh, in a few minutes, Dr. Jesse is the owner and chief veterinarian of Aquatic Veterinary Services. We'll be right back after these messages from our sponsors. Pet Life Radio, the number one pet radio network on the planet, joins forces with iHeartRadio to put the power of your pets in your pocket. Awesome. Download the iHeartRadio app and rock Pet Life Radio on your phone, on your tablet, on your Xbox, in your car. Pet talk, pet tunes, and fun pet times. Pet Life Radio and iHeartRadio. Positively possum. Let's talk pets. Let's talk pets. On Pet Life Radio. Pet Life Radio. PetLifeRadio.com. We're back and continuing our conversation with my guest, Dr. Jesse Sanders, owner and chief veterinarian of Aquatic Veterinary Services. So we kind of talked a little bit about your background and, and uh, kind of things that got you to where you are today. And even, you know, just when it comes to educating the general public about the fact that, you know, veterinarians do see fish, all those sorts of things. Now, let's kind of get into a little bit of the meat of some of the interesting cases you've had, some of the challenges. One thing I actually was curious about and, and maybe having your perspective for our listeners is how you approach a case. So let's say you get a call from a koi owner. What would be maybe your kind of general approach? Because I think a lot of folks that have fish, you know, obviously many of them don't think about working with a vet, but it would be helpful for them to know maybe things that they should think about and things that, you know, will be helpful for them when they have a vet trying to help them out. Yeah. So when I get a case, you know, first time roll it up on the owners, um, obviously we're going to discuss, you know, just kind of a general history, what's been going on. Um, some important questions to ask for fish, especially with ponds is, have you added any new ones recently? And if you have, have you quarantined them at all? And usually the question is going to be, no, we didn't quarantine or somebody else did it for, you know, about two weeks at some unknown temperature. So Unfortunately, that's really one of the key ways that disease, especially parasites, can get into ponds. So just kind of putting that in the back of my mind when we're talking about other additional things like how they clean their pond or if they clean at all or if they hire somebody else to do it. So some koi ponds are very well thought out, you know, with all the right equipment, everything's plumbed correctly in the right order. And yes, there obviously is a way that you can plumb your components incorrectly, having done it myself incorrectly a couple times. But for a lot of owners, sometimes there's not a lot of thought put into building the pond other than let's dig a giant hole and throw some fish in there. And then, you know, maybe we'll clean it once a year, depending on, you know, what things look like. So again, asking those questions of owners and just getting them to, to walk you through their normal maintenance routine is going to be really important. And then obviously once we're at the pond, I can kind of take a look. A lot of koi ponds have that 
typical problem of being overstocked just because, I mean, all fish start small. That's one thing, you know, no pet store is going to tell you, oh, this cute little three inch fish could potentially be two feet long one day. I'm sorry. I don't think that's ever mentioned when you buy a fish from the pet store. So a lot of times, yeah, sure. There was plenty of room when they were small, but now they're giant behemoths and they're getting packed in there like sardines, which obviously is going to put a crimp on your filtration and your water quality, in addition to stressing out your fish. So once we've done that, usually I'll do a water chemistry analysis. And that is sometimes the biggest issue for a lot of ponds is, yes, you got a lot of fish, but then your water is going to take the brunt of it. And like I said in our book, like you can't tell anything from a pond just based on what the water looks like. So teaching owners, you know, regular testing, make sure they write everything down is important. And then after we've done all that, I'll actually, you know, catch the fish, take them out and give them a full physical exam, just like you would a cat or a dog, except it's done obviously underwater. I use MS-222 or Tricane to pretty much knock out all of my patients. Um, it's just a lot less stressful for them when they're not trying to fight me. So I can give them a good exam. You know, we have imaging to do ultrasound and radiographs if necessary, and then pop them back in the pond. I have a new attachment for my microscope, which actually has a camera on it. So I'm able to show clients, you know, what their samples actually look like. And if there is a parasite wigging around, we can have a little video of it. So it's a great tool to show owners, you know, something going on that they're really not aware of. So yeah, once we get all that, we'll come up with a treatment plan if there's anything that needs to be done and and go from there. But I mean, it's like any other veterinary appointment. It's just a couple twists and turns to make it adapt to aquatic patients. And definitely having to ideally go out to the client versus them bringing it in, right? Oh, yes. Mobile is the way to go when it comes to fish. Fish, if you try to catch them, they assume you're going to eat them. And then you put them in a little plastic bag in the car and they just think it's the end of the world. It's going to make things so much worse. So yes, mobile all the way when it comes to fish, especially the big ones. That was an excellent kind of overview. And, uh, and hopefully that helps some of the listeners that do have fish. And, you know, and there are more and more folks that are seeking veterinary care. So I think that gives everybody a little bit of an overview. So you had mentioned you see koi predominantly, is that right? Or how would you break down like the the different groups that you, you see in your practice? Probably about 80 to 85% koi. And then we have, you know, about 10% goldfish, 4% betas and 1% everything else. Yeah, and that's yeah, and that's interesting. Koi. Yeah, it's interesting you me- you mentioned betas because a lot of folks think, well, you know, they're small, but yeah, you're right. I think people seem very attached to them, right? Oh yes, absolutely. I mean, a lot of beta issues just come from being in the wrong environment. So you know, having them in a stagnant bowl, you give them a heater and a filter, and it corrects most of the problems. And that you don't even need a veterinarian for. So kind of with that first question out of the way, so what are some of the most common health problems you see? You know, if you wanted to maybe list your top three or four and, and, you know, ways that those can be avoided. So number one issue I see with fish is poor water quality, which basically makes everything in a fish's life that's much more challenging. So with, you know, bad water quality, you know, we're talking increased nitrate off pH, high ammonia, um, puts them into, you know, a chronic stress situation. And when you live in a toilet, you're pretty much at the mercy of whatever's in your environment. So we see a lot of uh, secondary bacterial infections that wouldn't be there if the fish's water was okay. And, you know, you give them a couple days to get the water cleaned out and a lot of the fish can recover on their own. The second most common thing we see are parasites. And like I said, this is very common when fish are 
mingling in the pet store or the koi store with water from umpteenth thousands or hundreds of other fish and fish like to share things. So, you know, going through the pet store, they might only be there for a day or two, pick something up, and then they're not going to be sick for about a week later as that parasite has time to spread. And then they're going to, you know, obviously infect the entire pond or the tank, depending on what's going on. And then the third thing most commonly uh, that we see, especially with our fancy goldfish friends, are buoyancy disorders. So goldfish in particular are physostomous fish with a little duct that can inflate their swim bladder by gulping air. But when you take a fancy goldfish that used to be this long little comet and squish it down, yes, they're stupidly cute and adorable looking, but unfortunately I suspect it creates some structural issues, which causes them to have some buoyancy disorders, either being too positively buoyant and floating or being too negatively buoyant and stuck on the bottom. And given the amount of cases that I have seen, some of these can be very frustrating because there's really no good solution for some of these fish. Um, and it's very frustrating for the owners as well, because again, these fish are able to maintain when they're small, but once they start getting bigger and bulkier, these issues tend to get worse. Okay, great. Now I have to ask, of course, uh, if you have any favorite medical or surgical cases or one of each or two of each. I haven't done a ton of surgeries since getting my lovely little ultrasound um, because usually that'll tell us, you know, something's something's going on that we just can't fix. Personally, I am a big fan of doing enucleations or removing eyeballs. Um, koi in particular are a little bit more prone to um, chromatophoromas or pigment cell tumors. I think it's just, you know, the amount of UV exposure that they get. These little tumors basically form little sunglasses on top. And sometimes, you know, they'll get big and bulky and the fish, you know, thinking there's something on their head will try to itch their head and smack their little eye around, which obviously is not good for the fish. So by doing an enucleation or basically just taking the globe out, the fish is so much happier and has a great quality of life and they always heal up brilliantly. I have yet to have one that did not heal like it was never even there. So I really like being able to give those fish, you know, a much better quality of life. And I mean, they couldn't see anyway, so they're not going to miss having this giant thing that's attached to their head. And then one of my cases is still a bit of a mystery. Um, so we had a pond down in Carmel that was full of very expensive fish that looked like I don't I know on the podcast you can't see the picture behind me, but these are big, expensive Japanese koi. And she started having a very large bruise. That's actually going to be another question. So what would you say are some of the most expensive koi that you've ever worked with? And then you can go back to this this uh, answer. I do not work with a lot of high-end koi. Um, however, I do have one pond. Um, again, this is the one that I was referring to. I think the starting price on, I think there's been 13 fish total in this pond. The starting price was about five to 10 grand per fish. And again, that times 11 or 12 is considerable money. But the owner has to be one of the nicest people I've ever worked with. And he's had some very unique health issues for the fish in his pond, which I'm not sure if that's just because they carry that high price tag. As with breeding goes with some of these guys, they're looking for specific body types and colors. And I suspect they might be breeding some sarcomas, specifically ovarian sarcomas into these fish, because now we just had a necropsy yesterday um, for the second fish that has now passed in that pond with that disorder. 
maybe you mentioned what a sarcoma is. Sure. So um, a sarcoma is a type of neoplasia or cancer in fish. Tends to be very slow growing, doesn't really metastasize or move over to any other tissues. We haven't been able to confirm that these are ovarian in nature, except yesterday it was still within the ovarian capsule itself. So hopefully our pathologist will be able to confirm that, which is something that I and another pathologist have suspected for a very long time. But by the time you get the sample in, you know, all the normal tissue has been obliterated. Oh, that is, yeah, that's interesting. And and so would that just be a, like a surgical removal or... If I'd caught them early enough, yes. Um, with this fish that unfortunately was euthanized yesterday, she, she's she been a canary in this pond for a while. So anything that happens to these fish, she tends to display signs first. So she was kind of slowing down a couple months ago, not really eating as much, put her on some antibiotics, no change, and then she stopped eating altogether. So we ended up doing some more injectable antibiotics while treating the pond with some medicated feed just to make sure it didn't spread to anyone. But lo and behold, it, it come to find out after she'd lost considerable weight, there was still no external features. But on the necropsy, there was about a grapefruit-sized tumor in there that, again, was originating within the ovarian capsule that was there. So again, hopefully we'll have more news from the pathologist. And how big was this fish again? Goodness. She was... Let's see. I think we measured her at about 31 inches. At her highest weight, she was 34 pounds. Wow. Okay. When she started getting sick, she was down to 24 pounds. And I think right before her necropsy yesterday, she was down to 21 pounds. Okay. Yeah. When you said grapefruit size uh, you know, tumor, I'm thinking this has had to be a pretty big fish or it, very big. <laughs> it looked like a very large uh, ball um, sticking out of its body. <laughs> so yeah, yeah no, no. That, that, is a, that is a very big fish. So obviously in vet school, you know, you worked with dog and cat clients. How would you say petfish pond aquarium owners are different from your, you know, there isn't a typical, but sort of typical dog and cat owner? So in most ways, they're very similar. Again, they might not have as much familiarity with a aquatic pet versus, you know, a little cute, fluffy cat or dog that is a little bit easier for a lot of people to kind of interpret when something's wrong. You know, the dog doesn't want to do their normal thing. The cat's hiding on them, doing something weird. But for fish, it's a little harder for owners to know what's normal versus what's abnormal. And obviously, this is going to vary for many, many different clients. Some are obviously very attached and watching them, their fish intently every day. And other people, you know, their fish are out in the yard. It's winter. It's cold. They're not doing anything. They might go out and visit them you know, occasionally every couple days or so. So again, with fish, you have obviously the physical signs of disease. So missing scales, frayed fins, if you do see them flashing or trying to itch themselves. And then you have kind of the behavioral signs, which are a little bit harder for some owners to notice. So behavioral signs would be, you know, a fish that isn't eating as much. Maybe he's eating a little bit, or maybe he's just not schooling with everyone. And especially with some ponds, you know, where in the pond are they? Are they not leaving this waterfall because there's a water quality issue? Or maybe there's some area of the pond that has a dead spot where there's no oxygen. And sometimes it just takes, you know, a little bit more of a keen eye. So again, with the veterinarian side of things, and I do nothing but stare at fish all day, I'm really good at picking out, you know, even with fish and ponds I'm unfamiliar with, I'm a lot more keen on kind of picking out what's normal versus abnormal. But then I can mention it to the owners and they'll be able to look at it for next time. Yeah, it's great. Good, great points. So I like humor. Do you have any funny stories? Oh, goodness. 
Well, I do have, it's fish adjacent, not quite. So when we were getting ready to open up our hospital, so we did have a fish hospital for a couple years. And obviously we had a big event to open it and let the public in, kind of see what we were all about. I had a friend who loves helping out with these events. And I had just as a joke, bought like a clownfish costume that I was like going to put on and go out and greet the guests. And she saw it, grabbed it, and then ran out pretty much. So there's a four-way intersection right by our building. She had her headphones on. So she was just dancing out there on the crosswalk for over an hour, just bringing people bringing people in. So I ended up buying more fish costumes. And there was a flotilla of Nemos that accompanied us for a 4th of July parade. That's awesome. And since you mentioned that, you have to talk about, which I don't even know if you have anymore, your car. Oh, my car. Yes. So my lovely little mobile veterinary unit is currently decorated like a clownfish from head to tail. So it's a giant sticker. It's not actually a paint job because they told me I'd never be able to sell it if I painted that. And my husband's very glad because he got Nemo part one. So he we just peeled the sticker off and it's good to go. The paint job is immaculate. So yeah, we have a nice big clownfish as our as our mobile rig. And it's yeah, it's pretty awesome I, I've, when I've seen pictures of it. So cool. So uh, we've talked quite a bit about where you've come from, what you're working on, things like that. We're sort of hopefully talking to some of the next generation. Uh, you know, who knows out there? Um, do you have any advice for listeners interested in health careers with pet fish, you know, veterinary, veterinary technician, you know, any working maybe at aquaria or zoos that have aquaria? Any suggestions? Oh, yes. If you are a student out there who says you want to be a fish veterinarian, you're going to get laughed at a lot. And you can do whatever you want when it comes to veterinary medicine. Um, fish is no exception. I, you know, when I was in vet school, I was telling everybody I'm going to be a fish veterinarian. They thought I was crazy until, you know, I found all my colleagues at Aquavet and AAFV, so the American Association of Fish Veterinarians, which had only just begun when I was and finishing my veterinary school career. And you also had the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association, so WAVMA. Like I said, I'm sure there's lots of people who thought I was crazy and still to this day think that I'm completely insane for doing nothing but fish because what are you doing? There's no money in that. There's no clients. And I'm here to tell you there absolutely is. And it's not just pet fish. You know, there's going to be a lot of development in aquaculture and research. So for those of you who are out there and want to work with fish, don't let anyone tell you that you can't work with fish. Excellent, excellent advice for our future people. One more last question, and then we're going to unfortunately have to have to end our great discussion. Looking into the future, where do you see fish medicine in you know, 15, 20 years? So I am on the warpath to get fish medicine up there with any other normal recognized specialty. So I know AAFE is currently working on a board specialization in fish, which, you know, not only bringing a lot of worth to my clients, but I think it is a big step to, I don't want to, it's not the best word, but legitimizing what we do to other veterinarians. Because, you know, within the veterinary community, fish are kind of ridiculed a little bit. And again, a lot of people is comparing it to where exotics was and, you know, amphibian and reptile medicine 15, 20 years ago. So I think we have a lot of work to do and it's not just going to be me. It's going to be everyone who works with fish, but I'm going to bring it up 
myself if I have to, to be, you know, a recognized specialty. So when anyone is having a problem with fish, you know, the answer to being like, what am I going to do with this? Won't be, oh, go online, go to the pet store. It'll be call your veterinarian. Great. I'm hoping that happens too. Well, unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank our guest, Dr. Jesse Sanders and our producer, Mark Winter, very much for making this show possible. And Jesse, uh, now I have to ask if you have any final words of wisdom in general that you want to share. Final words of wisdom in general when it comes to fish. Um, for those owners out there, please test your water quality. And if you have an issue, you can contact the American Association of Fish Veterinarians or the World Aquatic Veterinary Medical Association to find a fish vet near you. For those students up there who want to be a fish vet, again, don't let anyone tell you that you can't. And if anyone is looking for more information about me or my practice, you can find our book online. Again, the name is How to Kill Your Koi. And then Boo and Bubbles is also there as well. And our website is cafishvet.com. Great. Thanks very much. Thanks again. Please be sure to check out Dr. Jesse Sanders' web links, which we will also have on her Aquarium Mania episode page. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for a show, email me at drroy at petliferadio.com. That's D-R-R-O-Y at petliferadio.com. Until next time, please visit your local cram stores and keep your tanks clean and your ponds clean and your fish healthy. And if you get a chance, check out Dr. Sanders' books and her websites. Let's Talk Pets, every week on demand, only on PetLifeRadio.com.